Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you have a pew Bible that you can find in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you, you can find it on page 942. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This morning we are back where we left off in our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. At the end of chapter 2, the author leaves us with the connection of Jesus to the high priest or the faithful high priest. And here in chapter 3, we are continuing on with this most important theme. But first, let me just say that this transition that we are going over is done in such a masterful way. He calls Jesus the faithful high priest after proving through scripture that he is superior to angels. And now he will bring in a new character, namely Moses. But before we get to Moses, let me just share the three points of today's or this morning's sermon with you. And the three points are Ah, Moses, faithful. Or Ah, Moses was faithful. Ah, Moses was faithful. That's what the three points are. And at first glance, you might ask, what does this have to do with Jesus? And the answer for this morning is everything. Everything. First, let's go to Ah. Ah stands for apostle and high priest, okay? And apostle and high priest, this is our first point. In verses 1 and to the beginning of verse 2, this is what the author of Hebrews writes. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. We'll take a quick stop there. Therefore, since Jesus is our faithful high priest, we all share at least two things. And number one is a heavenly calling, and number two is a confession. We share two things if Jesus is our high priest, according to verses one and the beginning of verse two. A heavenly calling and a confession. First, the calling. When people talk about jobs or careers, and I talk to a lot of people, even in our counseling sessions, what they really mean, and they even say this word, is they talk about jobs and careers as a vocation. Vocation, quite literally, is from the word vocal, 
which is calling. It means calling. When you're talking about your vocation, you're talking about your calling. And that's why people ask each other, what's your calling? What's your calling in life? You're asking for a vocation. Is what many young people also ask when they are searching for a career path. A lot of you out of college, you're searching and you're wondering what your call in life is. And when you finally find a field of study that you enjoy, you'll say things like, I found my calling. But if you think about it, what is a calling other than being called? It's indicative that if you have a calling, that there is a caller. In order for you to have a calling, you need someone to give you that call. I'm sure not many people thought of that when they would say things like, I found my calling. Because it points to something or even someone outside of ourselves. When you have a vocation, you are pointing to something outside of yourself that's giving you a call. And it points to, now the author, to this call that we have received. And he calls it not just a call, but he calls it a heavenly calling. What we share as Christians is a heavenly calling. It's meant to be then contrasted with the earthly. Heavenly is superior, whereas the earth is but a shadow. We have a heavenly calling, just as Peter says in 2 Peter 2.10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And we see here that calling then is correlated with our election. That means God's choosing of his people. Now the second thing that we are taking we are supposed to take away about this heavenly calling is that this heavenly calling can only come from God. To have a heavenly call then if you put these two uh, ideas together is then to be closely identified with the caller, namely God. This is why the author then can address his readers and as listeners as what? Holy brothers because they are closely related to God. Secondly, what Christians also share is a confession. We share a confession. Confession is from the Greek word homologia. Homo meaning same, and from logia or logos meaning word. What is this same word or one word that we share? Well, it's Jesus. But notice how the author just doesn't say Jesus. Every time we see the name of Jesus, it's qualified. That's the important thing that I hope you will not let escape your understanding. Some think that doctrine isn't important. They'll say things like, the only doctrine I need is Jesus. And I would respond, okay, and... And qualify what you mean by Jesus. Do you mean Jesus of your own emotional and political making? When you hear the name Jesus is the most dominant picture that you have of him, 
a soft and fair-skinned man with a light brown beard? Or do you see someone like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a service furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's from Revelations 1. Because if you saw this Jesus... I doubt you'd fare any better than John who saw this, who saw Jesus and fell at his feet as though dead. Qualify what you mean by Jesus. Do you mean an ineffectual, weak man, or do you mean, yes, tender, but firm, Savior and judge, who would not break a bruised reed while pronouncing judgment on those who refuse to repent? Qualify what you mean by Jesus. Do you mean like a genie, like a genie of a lamp where he's bound to grant you your wishes just as long as you have enough faith, right? You can bend Jesus to your will as long as you have enough faith. Or do you mean the king of kings whose will to who you bow down? When people think, ask things like, well, then why are you so focused on so much, so much on doctrine? Why not just love Jesus? Just love Jesus, okay? But it's like asking, why do you need to know what kind of person your wife is? Just love her. It's a nonsensical statement meant to lead you away from thinking and meditating on who God is. You can say, I can say things like, I love my wife. She is beautiful. And when I start to describe my wife, I'm really describing the tree in my backyard. Oh, the bark is very brown. It's very thick. I love my wife. It's like, what are you talking about? That's not your wife. That's the tree in your backyard, bro. She's not your wife if you call her those things. You don't know her if you are confusing your wife with the tree in your backyard. When Jesus calls his people, he commands them to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So the author of Hebrews qualifies of whom we are making our confession or to whom we are making a binding expression of our commitment. It's to Jesus, the divine son and now as we see, how does he qualify to whom we're making a confession? The apostle and high priest. The apostle and high priest, I believe, is meant to be taken as a unit. In the Greek, the definite article is only in front of the word apostle with only the conjunction in front of high priest, which would suggest that these two titles or designations are supposed to be parallel with each other then we would be able to see how these two designations or titles will help define each other. First, because we have gone over high priest in the previous weeks, let me review this. Whenever the high priest is mentioned in the Old Testament, what would have been recalled to the hearer would be the Day of Atonement. 
It's when the high priest once a year would go and make atonement for the sins of the people by sacrificing a goat and taking the blood of that goat and sprinkling it on the mercy seat in the tabernacle. Then it says this in Leviticus 16, 16. Thus he shall make, this is the high priest, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. That's what the high priest did. And when the high priest is mentioned, he is primarily associated with the atonement. Now, when the author of Hebrews qualifies Jesus, remember, he's qualifying Jesus as the apostle and high priest, what does that mean? Because when you hear apostle, do you think of Jesus right away? For most people, when you hear the word apostle, you think of the disciples. But here, Jesus is mentioned as the apostle, and that might be a little bit confusing at first. However, when looking at the word apostle in the time the Bible was written, apostle literally means one who is sent. In fact, we have a word that we've been using for someone that is sent in this book. And that word that we have studied in the first two chapters of Hebrews, it's the word angel. Angel is from the Greek word for messenger, but angel or messenger means someone who's sent. We have Greek texts that would even use the word apostle for the word angel. For take, for example, Exodus 23, 20, where it says, Behold, my angel shall go before you. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, it's also translated as angelos. In other sections agreeing with the text that we are used to, we see the word angelos, but we also see the word apostle. Behold, my apostle will go before you. Justin Martyr would also write in his first apology, identifying Jesus as the Son of God and Apostle. In another section of his writing, the first apology, he would also put Jesus as the angel and Apostle. So the word for Apostle is identified with angels, which you saw in the first two chapters, which also makes sense because angel means messenger, and messenger is someone who is sent, which is also an Apostle. But the title Apostle is derived from the figure, and this is so fascinating, okay? We talked about angels, and you're like, why does he jump to this new character in chapter 3? But does he? That's the fascinating part. The title of apostle is derived from Exodus 3.10 in the Septuagint, and this is what God says to Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of of Israel out of Egypt. Come, I will send you. That Greek word in the Septuagint is apostle. And so here it is. The titles are indivisible, and to the Hebrew reader or listener, they would have re- recalled clearly to them Moses. So that's point number two. And I continue on with verse two. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, it's honestly difficult to exaggerate the importance of Moses to the Hebrew in all of Judaism. Even ask an Orthodox Jew today who their favorite prophet is, 
And most likely, in my opinion, most definitely, they will say Moses. In fact, if they have anyone else, it's after Moses. Moses is obviously the answer, and then they'll have someone else that they like. This veneration, though, is well-deserved. Moses has had the privilege of communion, communing with God that no other person had until Jesus. Well, Moses was, in fact, referred to also as a priest in the Old Testament. Just look at Psalm 99.6. He also had a, Leviticus, a Levitical background because both his parents were Levites. He would both also serve at the altar in Exodus chapter 24, associating Moses with priestly functions. But there's more. There's more than this. Moses would also have access that no one else would have because he would be able to talk to God face to face. In Exodus 33, he would even intercede for his people because God was going to destroy his people for their sins, but he would succeed in interceding for his people and staving off God's wrath. The story in itself in Exodus 33 is just simply fascinating, but it should suffice in me saying that this shows the superiority of the rank that Moses had that he held in both the scriptures and also in the Jewish community. And in the end of verse 2, the comparison is made between Moses and Jesus. Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful, that's what's written. And if you're familiar with the Pentateuch, the five the five, uh, first five books of the Bible, and you read these verses, you read these six verses, from verse 2 and on, you will see an allusion to Numbers 12, especially verse 7. You couldn't get around it. But it should have been brought to the mind, this section of Numbers, and just where it says Moses was the most humble man in the world. I don't know if you recall this, but if you read Numbers or if you ever heard this uh, section, you will recall that the first five books written by Moses, in that Moses describes himself to be the most humble man in the world. That's the section, Numbers 12. If you would, turn with me to Numbers 12. We'll read just the first nine verses, but I just want to go over that with you. Numbers 12, verses 1 through 9. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. 
clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. That's the story. The NASB or the, and the NIV actually translate this word as humble in verse 3. Moses was very humble more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. The ESV and the KJV or the King James Version say meek. The Hebrew word is for humble though, but contextually speaking, meek isn't wrong either. But let's think about the verse. And I thought about verse 3 a lot. Let's just translate it to humble for a moment. Moses wrote the book of Numbers, albeit he probably had a scribe as most people would have at the time. But how weird would it be to write of yourself to be a humble man? And not just that, the most humble man in all the earth. Wouldn't that in the very least kind of negate your humbleness? What I'm trying to get at is, just as Benjamin Franklin would say, is that humility may be one of the most elusive virtues because once you feel as though you are humble or you achieved humility, you've lost it because you become proud of your humility. Thereby, you are not humble. Isn't it weird that Moses would write that he was the most humble man in all the world? Humble people wouldn't really call themselves humble, would they? And so I've heard theories posited to explain this verse. This verse just comes like out of nowhere, doesn't it? Perhaps Moses, his scribe, just put it in for him. You know, he was just listening to Moses, jotting down the things that Moses was recalling at this time, and he thought to himself, you know what? Moses is really humble, like really humble, the people got to know, I got to write this in. And he just writes it in verse 3 all of a sudden. Is that what happened, though? Could that have happened? It's possible, but I don't think so. I really don't. I don't think that the scribe was able to slip one by past Moses. And for some reason, just that sentence, to say that just that one sentence was, in, was you know, inspired by God to the scribe only. Moses, you know, he was left in the dark. I don't think so. So do I think Moses wrote that he was the most humble man in the world about himself? And I think he did. Let me explain. First of all, first of all, what if it was true? If it was true, then it would not be wrong for him to write that or to dictate that to a scribe. If he was indeed the most humble man in the world, there's no issue with him writing it. And I believe he was. Secondly, I don't think it was some random insertion. Moses wasn't recalling the story of how Miriam and Aaron had this coup d'etat and then he thought to himself, wow, I'm really humble. I don't think he thought that either. What does humble mean? Humble means low position. It can also mean someone who then is in need. A needy person would have been considered a humble person in the Hebrew context. So to be the most humble man in the world would mean in this particular context that Moses was someone who believed that he needed God the most. 
And when you look at verse 2 and verse 4, the verses before and after verse 3, in verse 4 it says this, uh, suddenly the Lord, suddenly the Lord. It says, first in verse 2, it says the Lord heard it, and then it talks about Moses' humility, and then in verse 4 it says, suddenly the Lord. The Lord saw how much Moses needed God and the Lord rushed to his aid. How humble was Moses? Well, the question is, how much did Moses rely and need God? How much did Moses need and rely on God? So much so that the Lord would suddenly come to his aid. And after he calls out Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, he says in verse 7 this, how Moses is faithful in all my house. Now, after hearing this section in this context, the Lord declaring Moses' faithfulness in all of God's house, then when God says Moses is, Moses is faithful in all God's house or all my house, that is an emphatic statement. How faithful is Moses? He is faithful in all God's house is how we would read it. And in verse 2, the author in Hebrews is pointing out that Jesus is faithful like Moses is faithful. This is no small superlative then of faithfulness that he gives to Jesus. The cohesion of Jesus and Moses' faithfulness is highlighted, and so the listener and reader would have been in the very least, they would have understood this, as Moses was faithful to God, and how faithful was Moses, just look in Numbers 12, as Moses was faithful to God, Jesus is faithful to God. But the cohesion stops there. Because in verse 3, the author states that Jesus has been counted more worthy of glory than Moses. How so? The analogy is given. In the same way, a builder of a house is given more glory than what's given to the house. You might see a beautiful structure and marvel at it. And it's most definitely not brutalist architecture. If you know, you know. But we give a different and greater honor to the one who thought up and constructed that structure. What is the difference between Jesus and Moses? What is the difference between the architect and the building? Because in verse 4 it says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The difference in glory between God and his creation. This statement in verse 4 is also something we should look at. The first part of the sentence in verse 4 is just a simple truism. Every house is built by someone. You might be like, duh, yeah. And then it ends with, but the builder of all things is God. Okay, why add that part? Why add that part? Why all of a sudden identify God as the builder of all things when we're talking about Jesus and Moses? Because the author here is presenting a chiastic argument in verses 3 and 4. Just a review. Chiasm is when you have, let's say, A, a statement A, and then you have a statement B, and then you go flip statement B so that you could go back down to Statement A. It's like you have these statements, you have these statements, and you can just fold it together, and if you open it up, 
That's the chiasm. So what's the chiasm? A, Jesus is, in verse 3, Jesus is more worthy of honor than Moses. B, the builder of the house receives more honor than the house. There's A, there's B. And it goes back down to B in verse 4. Every house, because it's talking about a house, is built by someone. And so what's A? What is the conclusion? God is the builder of everything. Moses is correlated to the house. Jesus is God. And in the same way God receives all the glory from his creation, that way is how Jesus receives this glory. So in no way does the author diminish Moses. He puts Moses in an extremely high position that he well deserves. But he says Jesus is superior to Moses. How so? And it goes to our final point, faithful. Faithful. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Remember calling back to Numbers 12, 7 to testify to the things that were to be spoken later But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hebrews isn't diminishing Moses' faithfulness. But now here he will put Moses' faithfulness in the proper context. Moses faithfully executed his office as a servant. I doubt Any Hebrew listening or reading this would have had any objection to that. But the distinction is now made from servant to son. Moses was faithful as a servant. Even Moses would say in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Because he would point to someone greater than himself. Now, if you continue to read Deuteronomy chapter 18, the litmus test for a prophet, you would read in that chapter is whatever the prophet says, you know it's from the Lord if it comes true. If it doesn't come true, the so-called prophet is not from God. It's not from the Lord. So use that litmus test against Moses' words, in his own words, in all of the Old Testament, there was no prophet like Moses. No prophet. Use all of Jewish custom and tradition. There is no prophet like Moses. Like I stated, stated before, Moses was tip-top, cream of the crop, best of the best, the upper crust. Was there any prophet like Moses who would give them anything even close to the law of God that God gave through Moses? But Moses, what he said was he testified to the things that were to come. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. In this way, as great as Moses was, he would be correlated with angels. But Jesus has a superior designation and status. He is a son. And so when Moses is faithful, he's faithful as a servant. But when Jesus is faithful, he is faithful as a son. Same faithfulness, different designations. The designation is important, just as you can have a faithful shoemaker. If you're a faithful shoemaker, you make good shoes. It's incredibly noble, and it is important that you do that. But the designation is the difference, perhaps, between a faithful shoemaker and a faithful nation leader. 
It's important that both people are faithful, and it's commendable when both people are, but the designation is important too. The designation divide, however, the designation divide between Moses and Jesus, between servant and son, is far greater than shoemaker and nation leader. The difference and the divide between servant and son is far greater. And it is in that way the glory of Jesus surpasses Moses. And so how does Jesus' faithfulness then affect us? And this is how the section ends. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is the faithful apostle and high priest. He's the faithful house builder. We are the house. Because he is faithful, we can be assured that he will also build a faithful house. What are the hallmarks of a faithful house? Someone who holds fast their confidence and their boasting in their hope. That's what it says. This is manifest then as boldness as you see someone in the faith. They do not waver from left to right. They are steadfast because why? Because their eyes are on Jesus. There is this unshakable hope that a believer has in Jesus because of what Jesus has done for them. Peter quotes what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.15, what I read also in Acts 3 in his sermon. In Acts 3, this is part of Peter's sermon, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. That's the message. If you understand that Jesus is the faithful house builder, if you recognize that Jesus is the apostle and high priest, repent, turn to God, and your sins will be forgiven. And with the forgiveness of our sins, now Jesus' perfect life is given to us, and now we have the right to enter into communion with God. That's bold. That's the bold we're talking about. Because who are you to enter into God's presence? Who are you to be with him? Who are you to claim him as Lord? And you can say this, I am the house that he has built. And this faith is unshakable. We can boast in this hope because we have a faithful high priest in the service of God. What a mighty Savior we have in Jesus. What a magnificent God we can serve and we can have our hope in for all eternity. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us, the hope, the eternal hope that is unshakable, that we are to boast in.
in our Lord Jesus. Now, O oh God, we ask that you would help us to continue to be sanctified, to live a life that glorifies you, that is pleasing to you, that edifies our neighbor. Let's take this time to pray. And just as we've heard in this word, how is the Lord convicting your heart to repent, to turn from what was sinful, and to turn to God? Ask God for the faith, the strength to carry on as one, would, as one who would have ultimate hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.